Blog Talk Radio. Presenting yourselves on this battlefield, I give you thanks. This is our army. To join it, you give homage. I give homage to Scotland. And if this is your army, why does it go? We didn't come here to fight for them. Oh, the English are too many.
But we are making a stand, and we're waking everybody up that 9-11 was an inside job. And you are the minority. You are the cowards who don't know the truth. You're the people that serve this evil system. You're the people that serve a system that hurts innocent men, women, and children. Not just Iraqis, not just Afghans, not just Africans, but the people right here in this nation. You serve a new world order that attacks and feeds on you. And I'm here to tell you that you will be defeated. Your hours are numbered. We've got the energy. We've got the life force. All you've got is evil backing you up. All you've got is greed and not going to look at yourself in the mirror. Because deep down, the New World Order is a pot-bellied, chicken-necked ninny. And all the armor and all the weapons are nothing. You are nothing compared to good. You are nothing compared to life. And you will be defeated. I want the individuals out there, I want free humanity to turn themselves loose, to cut the chains loose, and to use the end of that chain to slap the New World Order right upside the head. You've got the power. You want to know who can defeat the New World Order? It is you. You're the individuals that are going to be able to defeat this system. You're the individuals that are going to be able to take down the New World Order. It doesn't matter if Ron Paul wins. It doesn't matter if they rig the election. What matters is, is that we're starting to stand up. We're starting to move. We're starting to find our legs. We're starting to build our muscles. We're starting to realize that we do have power, and we can work together, and we can take action, and that the naysayers are a pack of weak liars who have never had any successes in their life and who are upset and frustrated to see us beginning to have victories against tyranny. They don't have any respect for themselves. They don't have any vision. And they don't have any will. And they sure don't have any of the power that shines out of God's soul and energizes all life in the universe. They have wed themselves to death. And they will crumble, and they will fall, and for eternity we wed ourselves to life, and to everything good, and everything that flows from it. I feel like this all the time trying to politically awaken people that they're being lied to, that there's an agenda. It's not left or right. It's, hey, there's mind control going on. The signal's broadcast 24 hours a day through all this media. Just become aware of it, and they'll say, there's nothing going on. And I want to say, put on these glasses or start chewing concrete. They have taken the hearts and minds of our leaders. They have recruited the rich and the powerful. And they have blinded us to the truth. The question is, do we all work for central bankers? That's what I want to address to our guests tonight. Our impulses are being redirected. We are living in an artificially induced state of consciousness that resembles sleep. An estimated 50 to 70 million Americans suffer from a sleep disorder or sleep deprivation. Outside the limit of our sight, feeding off us. Perched on top of us from birth to death are our owners. Latest census numbers prove the United States has the biggest gap between rich and poor compared to all westernized countries today. Our projections show that by the year 2025, 
not only America, but the entire planet, will be under the protection and the dominion of this power alliance. The gains have been substantial, both for ourselves and for you, the human power elite. And for the first time in all of human history, mankind is politically awakened. That's a total new reality. I've got one that can see. We can't be the only ones who can see. Unfortunately, you've grown up hearing voices that incessantly warn of government as nothing more than some separate sinister entity that's got at the root of all our problems. It's a new morning in America. Fresh. Yes, it's a new morning in America. Understanding the times in which we live today. Joseph Gibson, blogtalkradio.com forward slash Joseph Gibson. Uh, you can get us in uh, iHeartRadio, Audible, all over the place, man. We're all over the place. Gotta love it. Gotta love it. I'm not getting paid for none of it, though. I'm not making any money. That's for sure. So you gotta support the show, man. Go to the support link. Support the podcast. So one day we may be gone. All right. And if you don't support me over here, go over to the NSM. NSM88.org. Check them out. All right. Well, you want to know why your country's sick and disgusting? You want to know what's wrong with America today? Listen to this, folks. Just listen to this. And you'll figure it out real quick. Here a bell and then March Stone. All right, well, I'm just thankful that y'all don't have the ability to um, make a mask mandate. And tonight I was going to talk about the need for a second high school, but I was sidetracked by, for the boys, pussy or the idea of pussy or the idea of idea of pussy. A Mexican is a Mexican is a Mexican. Take her out back, we boys figured, then hand on the titties. Put it in her coin box, put it in her cornhole, grab a hold of that braid, rub that calico. You can find that on page 39 of the book called Out of Darkness, which you can find at Hudson Bend Middle School and BK Middle School. All right, not going to lie, I had to Google cornhole because I have the game in the back of my yard, but according to Wikipedia, cornhole is a sexualist slang vulgarism for anus. The term came into the use in the 1910s of the United States as verb form to cornhole, which came into usage in the 1930s, means to have anal sex. I do not want my children to learn about anal sex in middle school. I have never had anal sex. I don't want to have anal sex. I don't want my kids having anal sex. I want you to start focusing on education and not public health. Stone, you're on. Well, he cut her mic off and told her to shut up and sit down. Because you're dumb slaves, you see. You obey. And if you don't want to obey, they got the guys that are just doing their job. I'm just doing my job, you know. That will haul you off in handcuffs and put you in a concrete box. Okay? Because you're a slave. You will obey. You will obey. Yeah, she got to, you know, complain and stomp her feet right there at the school board meeting. That's good. People should do that. They really, you know, I, I applaud her for that. But the more has to be done. You know, she, you know, because that's all you're going to be able to do. And you see, they shut her right down. They shut her right down. 
you know, and, and, you know, they want you shut up. They will shut you up. They want me to shut up. They want if they don't like what I say, they'll shut me up. I have no right here to speak. I have no right at all. All somebody has to do is say they don't like me, or they, or they, uh, or somebody that runs this platform that offers this platform for us to do podcast shows and say they pull the plug. We don't like Joe Gibson no more. But get on with there. What am I going to do? What can I do about it? What can I really do? Nothing. Nothing. When you're at the uh, town hall meetings there and you're talking to your elected officials that are supposed to be representing you, and they tell you, ma'am, sit down, all right, your time's up, time's up, and they cut her microphone off, what is she going to do about it? What can she do? She can't do nothing, right? And then uh, the councilman says, oh, officer, officer, sheriff, deputy, please. Then they'll, they'll say, ma'am, ma'am, all right, I'm asking you one time, ma'am, otherwise I'm going to have to arrest you, ma'am, ma'am, ma'am. No, I have a right to speak. Ma'am, ma'am, no more. All right, all right, ma'am, put your hands right. What are you asking me for? Don't get put your hands on me. Ma'am, you're resisting. Stop resisting. Stop. Slam. That's it. Slam. Ah, boom. And then they, uh, call 52. Officer down. Officer, don't stop. And then, oh, then they all come. Like bees, you know, to honey. Get her. Get her. Stop resisting. You know, and then they were twisting her arm upside down, breaking it in half. Yeah, handcuffing her. She should have complied. Right? That's what you'll get every. Then you get the Monday morning quarterbacks out there. Well, you know, she should have thought. She should have just listened. You always got to listen, you know. And then they haul her off. She's in the hospital. Could be dead. Nobody knows. Follow-up story about her, you know. Family's trying to wonder what's happening. We don't give out information right now, ma'am. We'll let you know. You know, yeah. And if she survives, she'll be arrested. She, of course, got charges now pending. Disturbing the peace. I don't know. Trespassing. I don't know. Assaulting a police officer. You know. And then, uh... Now she's going through the court system. Continue, 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 continue. First offer, $500 fine, 30 days suspended. Continue, 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 continue. And then your lawyer, ching, 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 your lawyer. And it's one big damn game, man. Game. But you people love it. You seem to love it. You must like it. Americans are supposed to be big, bad, strong, tough. We're tough. We're American tough, right? Like most have truck there, Ford, I think. American tough, yeah, right. You're tough against each other. Hey, you, you disrespected me. Don't you pull, cut me off in the right lane there. Get him! Bang, 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 bang. You shoot his kid and, you, and, the, guy, and, the, and the guy you're after lives, you know? And then you're in jail for 90 years. Yeah, you're tough. Yeah. That's what you want to fight over, you Americans. That's what you all want to fight over. Hey, you. You cut in front of me in line here at Wendy's. Get up! Beat them up! Yeah! You know? But these people who are pumping you full of poison, lying to you on the TV, sending your men, beating up, beating your women up, beating you up, you don't want to do nothing about it. Oh, well, that's the way it is. Can't do nothing about it. They're robbing you blind, man. You heard what the guy said the other night on the show? He was a Jewish guy, 75 years old. He said, we're intellectually superior to you. We're superior. That's what he said. No, but yeah, we have Do not. He's a racist. You're racist. You bigots. That's not, you know. But the guy said it right there on the show, man. That's what they believe. When we've been preaching it, we've been telling it. That was so good. Yeah, you openly admitted that. Now deny the Jewish conspiracy. Now deny it, pastors. Now deny it. Go ahead. Now deny it. 
they got an excuse for everything, them guys. You know, it's like one I was telling about the, you know, with the, that police story right there. You know, well they're just, yeah, I'm just doing my job. Yeah, you know, I got a job to do. You know, he's just doing his job. Do as I say, but don't do as I do. You know, yeah, I got I'm enforcement, law enforcement. I'm gonna enforce the laws. Yeah. Yeah, who that? What? What? You don't have to enforce it. We're so far from what this country was founded. But yet you got the idiots out there on the Fourth of July, lighting the fire, blowing their fingers off with M80s. Yeah, happy Fourth. We're free. Yeah, right. Memorial Day. Thank you. Well, that's what you want. That's your America. You got it. You got it, man. You got it. It's yours. It's here. It's here to stay. It's going to get worse. A lot worse. Until you wake up and you knock it off. Wake up and knock it off. Now let's set the record straight. There's no argument over the choice between peace and war. But there's only one guaranteed way you can have peace. And you can have it in the next second. Surrender. Admittedly, there's a risk in any course we follow other than this, but every lesson of history tells us that the greater risk lies in appeasement. And this is the specter our well-meaning liberal friends refuse to face, that their policy of accommodation is appeasement. And it gives no choice between peace and war, only between fight or surrender. If we continue to accommodate, continue to back and retreat, eventually we have to face the final demand, the ultimatum. And what then? When Nikita Khrushchev has told his people, he knows what our answer will be. He has told them that we're retreating under the pressure of the Cold War, and someday, when the time comes to deliver the final ultimatum, our surrender will be voluntary, because by that time, we will have been weakened from within spiritually, morally, and economically. He believes this because from our side, he's heard voices pleading for peace at any price, or better rev than death. Or as one commentator put it, he'd rather live on his knees than die on his feet. And therein lies the road to war. Because those voices don't speak for the rest of us. You and I know and do not believe that life is so dear and peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery. If nothing in life is worth dying for, when did this begin? Just in the face of this enemy? Or should Moses have told the children of Israel to live in slavery under the pharaohs? Should Christ have refused the cross? Should the patriots at Concord Bridge have thrown down their guns and refused to fire the shotters around the world? The martyrs of history were not fools. And our honored dead, who gave their lives to stop the advance of the Nazis, didn't die in vain. Where then is the road to peace? Well, it's a simple answer after all. You and I have the courage to say to our enemies, there is a price we will not pay. There is a point beyond which they must not advance. Winston Churchill said the destiny of man is not measured by material competitions. When great forces are on the move in the world, we learn we're spirits, not animals. He said there's something going on in time and space and beyond time and space, which, whether we like it or not, spells duty. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. We'll preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth, or we'll sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. Taking a thousand steps, million years in the darkness. House of Cards collapses around the world. Here we go. 
September 20th, 2021, live news feed. Let's check this one out real quick, but before I do, uh, well, I want to go on some of these uh, things here that we can use to uh, stop this. Stop the madness, man. Stop it. Stop the madness. Stop the madness. You know, let me explain something to you. You know, there are ways for us to take back our country. There are remedies out there. I was talking to a guy, you know, I was talking to him about the remedy, National Liberty Alliance and whatnot, and the NSM. I was talking to one guy today, you know. So I never heard of that. No, really, never heard of that, huh? Never heard of my podcast show, never heard of nothing, yeah? So about 15 minutes later, we're talking again, you know, I'm sitting down eating someplace, but I'm not going to tell you where, but, you know, I'm talking to him. And then we start to later on the conversation. You know, I say, hey, what's your favorite football team? Oh, yeah, Chicago. I mean, excuse me, um, uh, Dallas Cowboys. Oh, yeah, yeah, huh? Yeah. I said, who's the quarterback for Dallas Cowboys? He goes, Dak Prescott. I said, how'd you know, how'd you know that? He goes, well, I looked it up on the internet. I said, keep track. Yeah, but you don't keep track of your freedom. The National Liberty, when I'm talking to you about them taking away your rights, you said, I never heard of that. How do I find it? Duh, duh, duh. What do I do? Duh. What do I do? Duh. What do you do? You know, you don't know how to look it up? But yet, but man, your favorite football team, you can look that up, huh? You know how to do that, don't you? You just have to be able to born with that tool, weren't you? Yeah, born with stupidity. Sometimes it makes me wonder if the, some of these people are even worth saving. I don't know. I just don't know. Oh, man, let me get this information up here. Maybe I'll just go ahead and play that for you while I get this information. But I want to tell you about stuff, how you can fix things. And if we had freaking more people freaking doing it, we wouldn't be in this mess today. We, you know, the place would be a much better place. You know, I mean, today I go to the gym, man, and the girl at the desk, you know, sir, you have a mask, Joe, you got a mask. She doesn't really know me. She just says my name because, you know, I'm checking in. I don't really know her, you know. Wish I did. She's kind of hot. But, but, you know, but anyway, uh, you know, you got a mask. I said, I said, come on, man, when did they start this? Well, the health department's running around finding people, just talking about well, everyone's got to wear a mask again. And, you know, they're man, it's mandated. Uh, I said, now where am I going to get a mask at? I said, you know, I'm at the you know, there's real stores around there. It's all, you know, it's a shopping plaza, but they don't sell masks. So where am I going to get a mask? I said, I don't want. I'm going to come here to work out, man. I, you know, we can go to Trader Joe's. Trader Joe's is a store, I guess, right next door. And I said, all right, I'll walk over there. I'll do it for you. You know, because I don't want to make any more enemies. You know, I already got freaking the whole world hates me already. You know, I don't want my where I work out to hate me too. So, you know, I mean, what am I going to do? I walk in the grocery store, they hate me. I thought question the mask thing. You know, I walk everywhere. So, anyway, I go over to Trader Joe's, and I'm looking around, and the zombies are just, they're like scattering all around like cockroaches. It's like I'm looking at them. I'm like, look at them. Look at these sheep. Look at them. You know, running around with their baskets, their carts, and everything. Running around, literally walking all fast like they're in a rush, too. You know? And, 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 and Trader Joe's, it's got like, what, six aisles. I don't know what the hell they sell there. I've never seen that kind of food before in my life, you know? Uh, I mean, weird, weird weird, type of food. Is that supposed to some kind of, does anybody know about Trader Joe's? I don't know. I'll have to bring it up, man. I get more callers in or something. Uh, what the hell is a Trader Joe's? You know, I I never was in there, you know? I, the food that they got in there, I guess it's a health food store or something. I don't know, but everything, a gallon of milk, 10 bucks. I like, what the hell is this? I said, oh, I can only imagine what the masks cost. I'll ask a lady, catch me. I said, hey, can I got an extra mask? Said, yeah, I'll get you one. She gave me one. You know, they're all happy to help you out, you know, with tyranny, you know. always, Everybody's always willing to help you out to take your rights away, you know. Ask them to stand on a street corner and stand, stand, stand hold of a sign 
The only answer is 1984 or 1776. See if they want to do that. All right, uh, let's see here. Let's get into this, this story here. Let's play this here for you guys. And uh, I got some stuff here to go over. And then uh, maybe I'll play that patent documentary tonight. I don't know. Maybe if I don't get any callers. Let's see here. Where, where'd it go with this story? Plays live internet radio. What do you want? All right. House of Cards collapses all around. Get ready. You know where the CIA tunes in, right? You know where the Russians tune in. You know where everybody tunes in, right? You know who Tucker Carlson tunes in to, Joe Rogan, Elon Musk. You know where they tune in, right? They tune in right here. InfoWars. Tomorrow's news. Today. Applied on this September 20th worldwide transmission. I want to say happy birthday to my amazing son, Rex Jones, who's now 19 years old today. We love you, Rex. You're such a great patriot and look forward to finding the globals with you for many years to come until we've rid the planet of these monsters, but maybe not for many years to come. I'd love to hang out my spurs. Ladies and gentlemen, the entire New World Order program is on fire and not in a good way. It is falling apart in front of us. The developments are just simply amazing. I'm going to fly back to Austin at 8 a.m. tomorrow, I should be able to get back from the airport by the time the show kicks off at 11 a.m. We're going to have a lot of the articles and a lot of the documents, a lot of the stories for you today. I know Owen Troyer's going to be co-hosting, so he can show those all to you. But we have the number one and number two scientists of the FDA going public three weeks ago, then writing a letter to Lancet saying this will destroy vaccine uh, safety and, and people trusting vaccines for generations saying don't give it to children, the regular vaccine is hurting people, it's not a vaccine, and don't give people boosters. You then had one FDA board next to the highest level, 26 to 2, vote last Friday to stop all the injections, basically yellow carded, saying this drug quote is failing. We had another top FDA board over all drugs and vaccines on the weekend, on, on the 18th, Saturday, two days ago, come out and vote 16 to 2, saying this drug, quote, is failing. It's not working. They call it a drug, not a vaccine. That's what it is. It's gene therapy. This is not had proper, uh, uh, proper approval. And they went on to say you shouldn't give people boosters and you shouldn't give it to children. Fauci and the head of the National Institutes of Health and others, Collins, all came out and said, we're going to give it to children. We're going to give it to newborns. But trust the science. So, this is Fauci that cooked up the bioweapon in Wuhan, released it. Obviously, he's released new strains. That's what all the top intelligence operatives, and I believe them, have said. Look how it just hit Texas and just hit Florida when we were open and had the lowest cases. This is globalist biowarfare through the CHICOMs with their agents. Uh, David Rockefeller was a CHICOM agent, helped set up the whole regime in power. Uh, people like Klaus Schwab uh, and people like Bill Gates are China files. They worship communist China. Uh, they say we should never open. China did a great job. And I'm going to talk about it when we come back from break the key to all this. I know I harp on this a lot, but I want to talk real slow for new listeners out there. And I want all of us, including myself, to really have this sink in. We are facing a new type of war. We're facing covert war against populations and against infrastructure and against our health and our souls, which is not a new type of war. It's really satanic war. It's total war. But it's a new, new type of war in modern times in that, there's no announcement, there's no uniforms, there's no nothing. There's people we think we should trust in positions of trust that are directing these attacks on us. So that is all coming up today. And Owen Schroeder also has a very prominent medical doctor, Sylvia Studio with him. I'm, I'm, I'm here still in D.C. 
in studio with him in the third hour. In fact, if that daughter gets there earlier, you should probably get him in there uh, even sooner. Or maybe you guys are going to take the fourth hour today. I'm just saying that one hour is not enough. That is all coming up and so much more. Owen, I want to talk about the undeclared war, a covert war, the perfect operating system for total tyranny, and how to stop it becoming fully aware of the war, and then seeing how things are connected from the globalist own statements and how to stop this uh, program. And then we're also going to look at the ongoing globalist invasion of the southern border. We first broke it yesterday, and of course it was confirmed. Another 10,000 patients coming across and building up on the side of Rianoso by McAllen, by plane hours away, an hour away, by car five and a half hours away, 200 plus miles away physically as the crow flies from Del Rio. What's happening there? That's now all broken, but barely. Fox News reported it, local Texas News is reporting it, but I, I searched the term this morning, patients in McAllen, and there was like two articles about it. So this is just huge news. Owen Schroyer riding shotgun. We'll be right back. Stay with us. And we are back live, thanks to the grace of God. Thank you so much for joining us on this live Monday, September 20th, 2021 edition. I talked about this some last night, but I have got my notes here of specifically how physically incontinent, but more importantly, mentally incontinent, Joe Biden has become. Uh, we're going to be breaking that down at the bottom of the hour. I've got all the notes right here, several pages of them. But I'm going to go over why this is so incredibly important directly from the Secret Service, directly from the Secret Service, directly from the people that were guarding Biden in New Jersey and on 9-11 um, a week and a half ago in New York and from inside the White House. This is from two separate sources in the Secret Service. We're here in D.C. right now. This is of the greatest national security import, and it is exclusive, horrible information. You've seen much of it unfold in the public eye, uh, but that's why they cancel a lot of Biden events when he's not drugged up properly and going into full-on dementia. But everybody else behind the scenes gets to see it. That's why when you see the Secret Service around Biden or you see people talking to him or looking at him, they're just like totally freaked out because it's, 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 it's the first truly Alzheimer's, dementia-ridden person uh, in control of the nuclear codes who had the election stolen for him and put into power. Then you've got the invasion at the South Texas border that's now stretched out over 200 miles, uh, confirming, again, Fox News, the DPS, the state police. Uh, the governor's office put out a report that, yes, there's thousands and thousands of more Asians, uh, five-plus hours by car, an hour by air, 200-plus uh, miles away as the crow flies coming across or are now building up on the Reynosa side of McAllen, Texas. Uh, this is just the complete collapse of the country. And now it's confirmed uh, that Biden is basically taking the unaccompanied males, the, the men with women, the people with children. They're all being flown to different parts of the country broken up on the buses and turned into the Democratic Party. Uh, they a permanent underclass. They're, they're going to fly a few flights out for PR purposes, but they told these people to come here, just like Biden said in March before the election, a year and a half ago or now more. Uh, he said, if I win the election or I get in, immediately search the border. Well, he said uh, 12 days ago, before all this started, hey, we're going to let the Haitians stay. Uh, and they stopped deportations of Haitians that had already gotten here. So they called their families and they said, 
Now is the time uh, to come into the country. Now is the time. Vamanos, underlay, underlay, underlay. Except that's Spanish. But I used to say, hurry up, get here in, in, in French or in Creole. Uh, but, but there you go, ladies and gentlemen. And I don't blame these people who want to come here. The issue is they're going to come here and be brainwashed. They're Democratic Party operatives. And the globalists have stolen the aid, helped shut down Iraq, Haiti, all these other countries. Then they bring these people here to be another client group that they control. So that's all coming up today. But I want next segment to try to judiciously as best I can, because they hope all this comes out. They try to suppress all this and buy people off and control them. But regulators in the EU, regulators in India, regulators even in Australia, regulators in Russia, uh, regulators in the U.K., regulators in Canada, regulators in the United States, have all come out, and, and the more come out, the more courage there is, and said, look, we yellow-carded this so-called vaccine three months ago and said it should be pulled, and we got ignored. That's just the vaccine period. The main advisory group for 20 years has advised the U.K. government that's in the statute they're supposed to follow. They're like, oh, we're not going to follow them now. And then the two-head scientists quit at the FDA, and then – now they voted in two different boards, including the highest board, 16 to 2. The vaccine's not working, and this is endangering all vaccines, and the public's going to never trust them again, and children shouldn't take it, and, under, and, and, and old people shouldn't take boosters, and Israel says the boosters don't help you. They get 48 hours of coverage. That doesn't even mean anything. So this is insane. This is crazy. But, again, they did it on purpose, and in their own SPARS 2023-2025 document that we covered now, six, eight months ago, I forget how long ago. You guys look up the SPARS report. That's like 4 million views on Bandai Video. We'll put it on screen so we give the actual date. Five, six months ago, I don't remember. I know General Flynn had a big deal about it and said that report's dead on. It's a war game. And in the war game, one year into vaccines, it comes out they're killing everybody and causing heart attacks and neurological disorders. And then all the regulators get in trouble, but not Big Pharma and not Bill Gates. They even have that war game out that it's going to cause heart attacks, strokes, It'll then destroy confidence in the government, and then you get into deeper parts of that document and others, then it means we overthrow the government. We, that's this, it's globalists did this through the government who want to cause a civil war. We want Gates. We want Fauci. We want uh, Peter Daszak. We want the CHICOMs. We want the U.N. The U.N. and the globalists did this through our government, so then we lose total faith in it and everything collapses. And I'm not saying have blind faith in the government. But they're dissolving our republic, framing it for the crimes they've committed. That, that they make our Border Patrol and National Guard go bring across millions. It's not 2 million this year. They're estimating 8 to 10 million by October 31st. That's the end of fiscal year 2021. That's directly in a hotel room with a senior whistleblower from the Border Patrol. Yeah, the head of the Border Patrol Union say everything I say. They're ordered to complete the smuggling process. They just walk off. Because they're there making it all orderly, this giant invasion. And then they complete the illegal activity. Uh, and, and, and so that's the case. And they also have NGOs controlling it. So, Owen, we're going to cover a lot here today. We're going to go over the incredible news. Lancet, the publication, not just a Lancet study, Lancet, most respected group out there, hands down. New England Medical Journal, John Hopkins, they're respected. That's just they why they quarterback the attack. Not all the scientists there, but the actual John Hopkins working group. It's what is under Gates' command and Schwab's command on record with all these different war game drills they do with the Rockefeller Foundation, actually controlling it from on high, but then it's, it's, it's like uh, been managed by the Gates Foundation and John Hopkins and the Chicoms and the media below that. 
They've now come out and said, look, Fauci created the weapon. Fauci did it. Fauci's a total criminal. And then Fauci fed fake medical journals, info, into the main journals and lied. The whole house of cards is coming down. So, and folks, you know I don't give you positive news to give you fake positive news. I give you the cold, hard, scary facts that I believe in you. And I believe that regulators and others that have been sheep-dipped and brainwashed and conditioned and, and gaslit to go along with this and suddenly find themselves inside this depopulation op need to really see others on the outside say what it really is. That's what we've done with all these doctors and scientists and medical reports and studies. And so now they really know what they've done, and a lot of them are now going to defect back to reality and back to their own future and their own families because they figure out this is a dystopia they're building. And so, oh, this is a really big moment to watch the wheels go off worldwide. Uh, they're moving forward with indictments against the regulators in India uh, that try to block ivermectin from the public. They've now cured everybody with ivermectin. Uh, more st- in Australia, they've been caught secretly giving patients ivermectin because the hospitals are doing a good job and not following the government's orders to murder people. I mean, this is all just an exercise of pure power, Ellen, and the wheels have come off. Yeah, and now we have more evidence that the vaccines are neither safe or effective if Oscar De La Hoya and the contrast to Joe Rogan wasn't the perfect example. We now have a gold medal Olympic swimmer. Anybody knows swimmers are maybe some of the most conditioned athletes on earth, except for maybe boxers. That would have been De, De La Hoya as the example, who was fully vaccinated and now is in the hospital with COVID. Uh, Alex, I also have, as you're kind of on the ground right now in D.C., on the ground digging deeply into the border story, on the ground digging deeply into what I guess the feds were trying to set up yesterday for the justice for J6, or they just were, were there in such numbers that the one arrest happens to be a fed with a gun. Uh, but there's so many other things developing here, Alex. Uh, I know it's yesterday's news, but, I mean, Hillary Clinton has been caught red-handed working with top executives and lawyers framing Donald Trump so that she could spy on him. Now it's all out there. But, but the media that lied about that is not going to get caught. Um, we've got more border news, Alex. We've got more news on the election front coming as well. I mean, I can't even give you a surface-level view of this waterfront, Alex, without like 10 minutes because so much is developing right now. Well, you're absolutely right. And, and, and so their whole narrative is falling apart, but they still control the Justice Department. So they're able to carry out all these crimes. We're in this paradox where they're in power, but everybody sees what monsters they are. We'll be right back. Ladies and gentlemen, again, we are back live on this live Monday edition. I'm Alex Jones in D.C. Owen Schroyer is in the ATX in Austin, Texas. And I want to just talk now. All right, all right. I think we've heard enough about the COVID thing. Uh one thing I want to cover is uh, weather control. We talk about a little bit about weather control here a little bit a few times. Um, I got something on that I want to play here real quick. Give you some information on that. Let's see what we got here. Let's see if we pull this up. Ah, unavailable. Darn it. Son of a bitch. Figures. All right, we'll go down here to this one. This one might be available. No, unavailable too. They take YouTube. Takes them down. You know. I've only been up there for two days. It took them down already. Well, I'm sorry about that. I wanted to get that one on there. Um, let's see what else they got here. Uh, up here, maybe I got one above that one, newer one there. I didn't check on. We'll try this one here. No, that one I already clicked on. Man, sorry about that. I really wanted that one. Um, really wanted to play you that one too. It was a good. One. I saw it. Um, well, maybe we got one here on Facebook here. 
here. Oh, here we go. Let's try this one here. All right. Um, take it America's children taken by Child Protective Services. Oh, I can't watch stuff like that. Not when you know, the next court date is. Uh, not sure when the next court date is, if I'm ever served properly. But I do know at the next one, uh, one of the supervisors in my case says they are requesting termination of rights. Already now. Oh, my goodness. Uh, I know. Well, you know, that's a tough situation there. You know, I mean, it's, it's I believe me, I would. I'm all for it, you know. I mean, I'm ready. You know, do what you got to do. I mean, you know, but these people just aren't just saying America doesn't want it. They just haven't had enough yet. I mean, I just don't know what to say. You know, um, let me tell you about getting your property. Let me tell you that. You know, you guys want to own You guys want to own your property? I'm going to tell you what to do right now. Okay? Man, you can laugh at it. You can do whatever you want until you try it. And you come, come back to me and say you didn't. You know, offer me proof. But um, if your local land recording district or county land recording office won't record your paperwork, look for the county that will often. Often it is only a matter of traveling a few miles or sending it through the, through the mail. All right. Let's see here. What we got here. All right. Worst comes to worst, do the paperwork, make a black and white copy for your files. Blah, blah, blah. Okay. Let's begin with the diagram of the fraud. People need to see how it starts with the missing uh, trade name. Process forward the trade name and fines. I'm trying to get to the woman, but the problem. Virtually all the land recording offices now require a recording cover sheet. This gives an example of the first recording cover sheet needed to file the act, uh, the acknowledgement, acceptance, and deed of uh, reconveyance. All subsequent filings need to be done with a recording cover sheet uh, as extensions of the original deed. Document number that will be issued once the deed of reconveyance is uh, recorded. For example, the next recording cover sheet would be identical, except the document title would be the certificate assumed name extension. Let's see. Uh, the act of expert expert. Oh, okay. Here is expertation explicitly renounces territory and municipal citizenship and returns the uh, derivative names and accounts to the land and soil. Um, the uh, baby deed of land recording is to help new parents and put an end to the uh, salvaging of American babies by these corporate vermin. Simply have a simply have a third party grandparent, uncle, family member, or friend or a notary, notary and record uh, the new deed. Okay, what deed are they talking about, though? Um, I'm trying. That's what I'm trying to find for you guys. The treaty referenced in Article... Okay, what you want to look up is the uh, example of the Linus Treaty referenced in Article 1176 that could also be filed. Um, they've, got, they've got the PDF documents here. So I don't know if I trust these though or not. So I don't I don't know about those. Um, you know, we all know that if you have a warranty deed, you think you own your property. You don't. Okay. If you have a warranty deed, you're a tenant on your land. You pay rent. It's called property tax. Well, everybody's about paying taxes. No, <clears throat> not when you have a Federal Reserve system that prints the money, fake money. There's no honest money or barter system. So taxes are just a joke. Um, so you pay rent. First of all, you shouldn't have to pay rent on your own land. Once you pay off your land and you purchase your land, it's your land. It's yours. Why should you pay rent or taxes for your land that you owe own? Excuse me. You own that piece of land. What what's what what's being done to your land that you have to pay taxes on it for? Okay. Well, people say, well, you are allowed to call the police. Okay. Well, scratch that off. I won't ever call them. Okay. 
Uh, let's see. Uh, well, fire. Okay, fire department. Okay. All right. Well, you know, you know, those. That's called. That's why we have volunteer firefighters. Okay. Everyone can volunteer. We don't need paid ones. Then how's that? Get rid of that tax. Okay. Um, what else do we got there? Uh, you know, what else could the city be? You know, they come in to clear the snow off my sidewalk for me in the winter time. No. Uh, what, what, what's the tax for? What's the property tax for? You know, uh, you know, and, and besides, I want to know where the money originates from too. Where, where the money? I want to know the total balance, the balance sheet. I want to see the entire the books. I want to see your uh, uh, centralized annual financial report, and I want to see it all. And I've already done that, and I've read it. And the numbers are so far out there. North Carolina had an eighty-six billion dollar surplus during the the so-called two thousand eight crisis. Remember when everybody was broke and the states were going bankrupt? Remember that? Everybody was going bankrupt, defaulting on everything, and they, <laughs> they weren't broke. North Carolina had $86 billion surplus that year, $86 billion. I went down there. I said, man, i got to put this thing to rest. I went and looked. True. Plenty of money. Plenty of money in the state. Plenty. Surplus, I said. Surplus. Okay? So it's a lie, man. It's a lie. It's a lie, 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 lie. Like everything else. All right. Um, let's see here. Let's get to, uh, let's do a reality check here. Uh, see, um, heart disease and cancer. Well, what's that one about? I didn't read that one yet. Um, <clears throat> let's see, reality check. All right. What must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? And they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and I shall be saved in thy, in thy house. And they spake unto him in the word of the Lord, and all to that were in his house, Acts 16, 30, 32. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be um, through faith in his blood, to declare the right, his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance, forbearance of God, Romans 3, 23, 25. For as by one man's disobedience, Adam... Many were made sinners. So by the dis, dis, so by the obedience of one Christ, shall many be made righteous. Romans five nineteen. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. Mark one fifteen. Except ye repent, ye shall perish. Luke thirteen three. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest, mayest be rich, and white raiment, that they mayest be clothed. Call, uh, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thy eyes with eyes, I, um, um, my eyes, that thy may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and ch- chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and will sup with him, and he with me. To him that overcometh I will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame, and I am set down with thy, my father in his throne, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches, Revelation three eighteen twenty two. Okay, so, uh, you know, it's pretty good there, I mean, you know, a lot of Christians listen to this show, Lord, I believe, help, help thy mind unbelief, Mark 9, 2, 4, if you don't believe, you know, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, Okay. So, let's do some uh, little comedy here. Um, let me think. Uh, let's do some Red Skeleton, huh? Here we go. One nation. 
one nation, meaning so blessed by God, indivisible, incapable of being divided, with liberty, which is freedom, the right of power to live one's own life without threats, fear, or some sort of retaliation, and justice, the principle are qualities of dealing fairly with others. For all. For all. Which means, boys and girls, it's as much your country as it is mine. And now, boys and girls, we hear you recite the Pledge of Allegiance. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Since I was a small boy, two states have been added to our country, and two words have been added to the Pledge of Allegiance, under God. Wouldn't it be a pity if someone said that is a prayer and that would be eliminated from schools, too. Republic, 
a state in which sovereign power is invested in representatives chosen by the people to govern. And government is the people. And it's from the people to the leaders, not from the leaders to the people, for which it stands. One nation, one nation, meaning so blessed by God, indivisible, incapable of being divided with liberty, which is freedom, the right of power to live one's own life, Without threats, fear, or some...
that church went for the better part of a century, and by 1857, there were 2,000 people a week that went to church in the Hall of the House of Representatives. In addition to that, there were four other churches that met at the Capitol. First Congregational, was this was their church home, as was First Presbyterian, as was Capitol Hill Presbyterian. Churches met here. There was nothing secular or seen to be secular about this building until the last 30, 40, 50 years. I'm revived. I feel different. I feel that I'll go home and know how to pray. Last night we walked around the Capitol. I spent more time crying and weeping listening to Brother David as he spoke about our government and, and the documents that he held up. And I said, Lord, I said, well, how can I be used? The David Barton tour of the Capitol, that was awesome. It was, it was enlightening. It was awesome. There was so much that I didn't know. It opened up our eyes where the media will only give you one side, but we got to see what America was built on. And even though we knew it, we got to see in depth. And just the information that he gave us, just it blew my mind. So I've lived in the general area for over 20 years now. I've never been inside the Capitol before. I'm within two and a half hours of the Capitol. David, the leader, was just phenomenal. So. One of the highlights for me was going to the Capitol building and getting some history about what's been going on as far as how this nation was started. And, and we've been lied to, and that's the, the honest to God truth. And just not and knowing that is really, I'm a little angry about it. And, uh, and I'm at a point of, of getting the education I need. You see the statue to the left of the door over there, that white marble statue? That is President James A. Garfield. President Garfield uh, was one of the young major generals in the Civil War. Uh, he was a war hero. He became Speaker of the House. He became the 20th President of the United States. And by the way, uh, that man founded Howard University. Uh, General O. O. Howard took it over after he founded it. Just a really cool guy. But what we never hear about that President of the United States is that he was a minister during the Second Great Awakening. Uh, this is actually one of his letters, signed James A. Garfield, 1858. In this letter, President Garfield recounts that he had just finished preaching a revival service where that he preached the gospel 19 times in the revival. He says as a result of his preaching, he said that 34 folks came to Christ and he baptized 31 of them. Now, that doesn't seem like a typical presidential activity today. That's what we used to do with presidents in the past. Again, you'd walk through, you'd see that statue, you'd think, oh, there's a president. You'd never think there's a minister. We've so compartmentalized Christianity in such a small box that we don't realize our military leaders, our, our ministers, our educators, our, our, our presidents used to be ministers. That's why I say about one-fourth of these statues are ministers of the gospel. Uh, the church has been silent. It's been a real eye-opener to see, uh, you know, the forefathers of our faith in this country, how they engaged the culture. They had a positive impact on the culture, and really we're all the beneficiaries of that generations later. Now, if you come back to these guys right here, these 56 guys right here are the ones that create all the problem with religious expression public today. You see, every time we go into a public setting or a court case, and What's happened is we've all been trained to recognize the two least religious founding fathers. We can all find Jefferson and Franklin, and everybody else is just like them. Really. 
I mean, most people have no clue that Jefferson started church in the U.S. Capitol that went for a century. Most people have, have no clue that Thomas Jefferson in 1803 negotiated a treaty with the Kaskasi Indians in which Jefferson put federal funds to pay for missionaries to go evangelize the Indians and gave federal funds so that after they were converted, we'd build them churches in which to worship. And that's our least religious founding father, okay, which tells you something about the others. Out of the 56 guys who signed the Declaration, you have 29 who held seminary or Bible school degrees. My first visit to FRC uh, was that of going through the Capitol tour with David Barton. And that changed my life because in that tour, we learned and found out things about this nation and the founding of this nation that are holy and strictly Christian from the Bible. And you need to know that. You need to hear about that. So I encourage you, make FRC a destination. The Family Research Council has given us pastors a voice that goes way beyond our pulpits. Everybody, Joseph Gibson podcasting here on which we live today. Let's go. Wait, I want to learn about Robert Lee, huh? Yeah, Robert Lee. Whoa, bad man, bad man in 2021, right? Bad man. Check the phone lines here just to make sure nobody's trying to get in here. Press the number one if you want to get in here. Six five seven three eight three zero six one six. Anybody want to check the phone boards here? All right. All right, nobody. All right, there. Just, just wanted to check, just make sure. Uh, see, these are the things that you're not taught. You're not taught this stuff, man. You know, and that, and you wonder why we're facing the problems we face. Did you hear the first video that I opened up with? What the kids are learning in school today about sex, cornholes, and stuff like that. Yeah, that's what they, uh, in the books and everything. And and then the, the representatives of the meetings. Ma'am, you're out of time. Ma'am, you're out of time. Just sit down. Sit down. Sit down! Sit down! Ma'am, get out here! The electrocutor and haul her off, you know, yeah. You know? Boy, what a freaking... Our country is so sick. We are... We're pathetic. Pathetic. You know? Let's let's hear about Robert Lee. Let's do a little bit of Robert Lee. There we go. Yeah, let's get him going. The, you know, the, the big, bad Jay Robert Lee, yeah. Live channel? That no. bad man. He's a, he's a racist! He's a racist! Yeah. I'm going to learn about Robert Lee here soon. Let me get it up here. You won't hear this in your history class in school. The man known to history as Robert Edward Lee was born on the 19th of January, 1807, in Stratford Hall, Virginia. His father was Henry Lee III, who was born into a privileged family and was also a famous American Revolutionary War hero. Henry Lee grew up in one of the foremost families in Virginia, as his mother, Lucy Grimes, was once courted by George Washington, while his father, Henry Lee II, bred horses. When Henry III turned 14, He attended Princeton, with other founding fathers like Aaron Burr and James Madison standing out amongst his peers. It was during this time that Henry Lee became wrapped up in revolutionary sentiment and joined the Continental Army. He climbed through the ranks and earned the nickname Light Horse Harry, following the cavalry charge he led at the Battle of Paulus Hook, New Jersey, which drew the attention of George Washington. Following the war, he served as the governor of Virginia. 
Robert E. Lee's mother was Anne Hill Carter, who was born into a prestigious and wealthy plantation family. Anne's father, Charles Carter, was a fifth-generation plantation owner of the Shirley Plantation. Anne Carter married Henry Lee III during his governorship on the 18th of June, 1793, in the governor's mansion parlor room. Following his retirement from the governorship, Anne moved in with Henry Lee at the family's holdings. Together, the couple had a total of six children, but only five survived into adulthood, with Robert E. Lee being the fifth child born. When Robert E. Lee was only one, the family fell on hard times, as the main source of income, the Stratford Plantation, was taken via entail and given to Henry's son from his first marriage, Henry Lee IV. The lost revenue was just one financial disaster that fell upon the family as Henry Lee had terrible luck in land speculation and ended up in debtor's jail twice. While protecting one of his friends who opposed the War of 1812, Henry Lee was injured severely and left the family to recover. Robert E. Lee would not see his father again as he died on the 25th of March, 1818, on Cumberland Island, Georgia, while trying to reunite with his family. Ultimately, Robert's father became known simply as the man who wrote Washington a bad check. Lee spent his time with his widowed mother in a modest home, though this was only possible due to the Carters leaving a small legacy to sustain her. The family lived at the Ravensworth Plantation, which was owned by one of Anne's relatives, William Henry Fitzhugh. Ravensworth Plantation would serve as the backdrop for Lee's depressing childhood, as the house was on the outskirts of Alexandria, in the swampy, mosquito-infested and unhealthy part of town. The house's interior was never painted while the Lees resided there, and they did not live alone, as they frequently shared with boarders. Lee did not live a privileged childhood, but he had fond memories of his pet lobster and hummingbird, which began his love of animals. Yet they sadly both passed on the same day. Lee spent his summers swimming in the Potomac and playing in the local springs. He attended a plantation school in Fouquier County before attending the Alexandria Academy at the age of 14. He received an excellent education whilst attending the Alexandria Academy, learning literature, algebra, as well as the classics. Lee's family was well connected to the Virginia aristocracy. This led to Fitzhugh penning a letter to United States Secretary of War John C. Calhoun, imploring that he allow Lee a spot at the United States Military Academy, West Point. Fitzhugh had Lee deliver the letter personally to Calhoun, which resulted in Lee being enrolled at West Point in 1825. For all of Lee's life, he had lived in the world of slavery, and now that he would be attending West Point, he would be entering a world where slavery was all but extinct. But despite the Lee's financial situation, they maintained four slaves left to Anne by her father. Lee was accustomed to being surrounded by slaves, but as he went further north, the number of enslaved blacks lessened. And whilst they were still not equal, many held freedoms Lee was not accustomed to. West Point at the time focused heavily on engineering, thanks to its superintendent, Brevet Major Sylvanus Thayer. Before Thayer had arrived at West Point, it was marred with drunkenness, disorder, and riots, but he transformed the academy into a prestigious institution. He introduced the famed cadet uniform, with grey coats, starched white trousers, and plumed black leather hats, with polished brass scales for the chin straps. When Lee arrived in June of 1825, there were roughly 200 cadets who would be given an exam intended to weed out those who were idiots and misfits. 
Following that, the cadets who made it through the examination were paired with three other cadets who shared a tent. Together, the tent mates had to purchase a joint toilet, a looking glass, a washstand and a basin, pitcher, tin pail, broom and a scrubbing brush. The quality of the food was often described as poor, yet Lee never complained about it. Wealthier cadets who snuck out of West Point would visit Gridley's Tavern to eat, drink and smoke. Most who went out would be given a demerit. But Lee never received any demerits, accomplishing a feat few others achieved. The curriculum consisted heavily of mathematics and French, as mathematics was crucial for military officers of the era, whilst France was the only ally to the United States and most military textbooks were in French. The Marquis de Lafayette often visited West Point to inspect the cadets, and these visits inspired Lee as Lafayette and his father Henry had fought together in the American Revolution, bringing 18th century heroes into evolving 19th century military tactics. Lee's daily regime at West Point started at 5.30 a.m. with the Revali, following a full day of mathematics and French classes, along with hours of independent studies, the cadets finished their day with full dress drills, parade and inspections. The cadets' day would officially end at 10 p.m. And whilst all cadets maintained a busy schedule, Lee made many friends during his time at West Point. One such friend was troublemaking third-year cadet Jefferson Davis, who was caught going off grounds to the local tavern to get drunk. He was only allowed to remain due to his previous good standing. When Lee's first year at West Point finished, he was third in his class and achieved a rating of 285 and a quarter out of 300 total points available. He was placed on a list with the other distinguished cadets, and Lee's status among the good and the great was odd for a man new to the academy. His reputation would earn him the nickname Marble Man for his emotionless expressions, whether he won or lost. During Lee's second year, Drawing was included in the curriculum, as officers were expected to be able to draw a usable map. Lee was made a senior cadet and tutored many of his fellow cadets in mathematics. He was enamored by the campaigns of Napoleon Bonaparte and read multiple books about his campaigns. Many of these books were new to the United States, showing the impressive collection West Point had. Also, Lee's ability to read French with relative ease allowed him access to these texts, as they would not have been translated into English. Many of Napoleon's tactics would be used by Lee on the battlefield, as, like Napoleon, he refused to fight on the defensive and preferred to use rapid attacks and bold flanking maneuvers. Following Lee's second year, he maintained second place standing in his class and applied for leave to visit his mother, who now lived with Lee's oldest brother, Charles Carter Lee, in Georgetown. His mother's health had greatly deteriorated since Lee went away to West Point. And when he came home, he took control of her care. Lee returned in 1827 for his third year at West Point and added physics and chemistry to his course list. Lee was introduced to battalion tactics and artillery use on the battlefield. He enhanced his knowledge by reading Machiavelli, Hamilton, Rousseau, and John Paul Jones. His wide command of different subjects outside of the military or engineering made him a special officer, though he remained in second place in his class. When Lee started his final year, he was given the position of adjutant of the corps, which is the highest position a cadet can hold. He would take his final exam on the 1st of June, 1828, finishing second once again, only to Charles Mason.
Upon graduating, Lee was given his choice of commission as a lieutenant in the engineer corps, a prize worthy of a top student at West Point. Though his achievements while at West Point would bring joy to Lee for a time, another family hardship would hit him hard. Lee had just arrived home when it became clear his mother would not recover, and in a couple of weeks of his return home, Anne passed away. Following his mother's death, Lee spent much of his time in Arlington, Virginia, especially with Mary Anna Randolph Curtis. The two met during Lee's first furlough, and he made a good first impression whilst attending house parties in his grey cadet attire. Ironically, they were seen as a mismatched pairing, as Lee was never late and was overly organized, while Mary was almost always late and scatterbrained. Despite this, the two took their time with supervised visits and hoped eventually for a future together with the blessing of Mary's parents. On the 11th of August, 1829, Lee received orders from Washington to report to Major Samuel Babcock of the Corps of Engineers in Cockspur Island, Georgia. Unfortunately for Lee, Cockspur Island was a depressing, hostile location with heat, humidity, fever, and mosquitoes, which made summer work unbearable. But it was also near where his father was buried. The Corps of Engineers had been attempting to build a fort to protect the mouth of the Savannah River, but was struggling to succeed. Lee immediately got to work, even getting involved in the labor himself, although most of his work would be destroyed by a storm after the labor season ended. Major Babcock would not return to Cockspur, as he was replaced with Lieutenant J.K.F. Mansfield. Mansfield lacked confidence to complete the project, and in turn would be replaced with Captain Delafield. Lee and Delafield immediately began outlining new plans for the fort, with Lee acting as the draftsman. Savannah would teach Lee a valuable lesson with regards to the sedated decision-making of the Corps of Engineers, and how projects lacked sufficient funds and were located in the worst places possible. He felt that if a situation was hopeless to change, you should remove yourself from the situation. And so Lee used his connections in Washington to get him reassigned to Old Point, Virginia, at Fort Monroe. Transferring to Fort Monroe would bring him closer to Mary, and his smart decision-making would set him apart from others. On his way to Fort Monroe, Lee stopped in Arlington to see Mary, and whilst there, he finally convinced her father to let them marry. Mary took Lee to the dining room to eat, and Lee asked Mary if she would marry him. The couple would marry on the 30th of June, 1831, and Mary decided to share Lee's quarters at Fort Monroe. She did so, and they lived there completely on their own, without any support from her father. The two were quite unique, as Mary had a tendency to boss Lee around the house, something unusual in the era. Nonetheless, the two maintained a strong bond, and it was during this time that the Lees acquired a place in Arlington, a location which enabled him to put down roots, something he never had during his childhood. The Arlington House, as it would be later called, was heavily inspired by Lee's relative's house, Mount Vernon, or George Washington's plantation. The couple moved into Lee's quarters at Fort Monroe in August of 1831, but his ability to work would be affected by problems with the authority of the garrison between the fort and school leader, Brevet Colonel Eustace, and the engineer leader, Captain Andrew Tolcott. Disputes rose frequently between the two men, mainly because the laborers for the engineering corps were disruptive to military procedures, which vexed Brevet Colonel Eustace. Despite the conflict between the army and the engineers, 
Lee excelled and took on vast amounts of responsibility, despite his inferior rank to many other officers. Lee worked hard to complete Fort Monroe, which would become known as the Gibraltar of Chesapeake Bay. And it was during this time at Fort Monroe that America's only effective slave revolt occurred in Southampton County, Virginia, which became known as the Nat Turner Rebellion. Nat Turner was an educated slave who preached to other slaves about the evils of slavery and how one day God would release them from their chains, allowing them to enact their revenge against their owners. An eclipse gave Turner the sign he was looking for, and he started his rebellion on the 21st of August 1831. As a result of the rebellion, Fort Monroe received three companies of artillery to deter any further rebellions. This event would shock the South as the myth of happy slaves was ultimately laid to rest. It also resulted in stricter laws regarding the freedom of slaves. Robert E. Lee was always consistent regarding his view on slavery and its effects on society. He was never an enthusiastic supporter, and in a letter to Mary, he stated that, quote, slavery as an institution is a moral and political evil in any country. It is useless to expatiate on its disadvantages. I think it, however, a greater evil to the white man than to the black race. And while my feelings are strongly enlisted on behalf of the latter, my sympathies are more strong for the former. Although Lee expressed disapproval of the institution of slavery, he still held the common view in the latter half of his letter that, quote, the blacks are immeasurably better off here than in Africa, morally, socially, and physically. The painful discipline they are undergoing is necessary for their instruction as a race, and I hope will prepare and lead them to better things. How long their subjugation may be necessary is known and ordered by a wise and merciful providence. Lee held a young, moderate Southern gentleman's view on slavery. While he agreed that slavery was immoral, he believed that the problem of slavery would be handled by God in his time. And it was not the responsibility of politicians or slave owners to answer the question. While Lee's approach was more of inaction towards the institution, despite his objection to it, others would take a different approach. Henry Clay, John Randolph, and Richard Bland founded the American Colonization Society to sponsor the creation of Liberia to send free blacks back to Africa. In order to satisfy slave owners, they were to be compensated for the loss of their slaves. Ultimately, the Liberia plan failed in its initial goal, and as tensions rose, it was written off as a slaveholder's scheme. The politics at Fort Monroe continued, and despite Lee's low rank, he always seemed to have more influence than senior officers, such as Colonel Eustace. This is believed to be because General Gratio, the chief of the Corps of Engineers, had more political sway in Washington, D.C. over the chief of artillery. Lee would lead the project to extend and reinforce a 15-acre artificial island, which would eventually become Fort Wool. This new fort would be used to support and defend Fort Monroe with crossfire at enemy vessels. Though the work was steady, he gained no joy from it and began to doubt his choice to join the military. The new soldiers who arrived at Fort Monroe brought new social life, primarily in the form of drinking, although Lee would abstain for the most part, and never understood the obsession with getting drunk. Unlike many of his fellow young officers, he was never seen as being stuffy and was considered to be great company to be around. He kept his distance from his peers and was a reserved man. 
Mary would visit Lee at Fort Monroe in June of 1832, and it would be during this time that the couple would announce the impending arrival of their first child. The Lee's first child would be George Washington Custis Lee, who was named after his grandfather, George Washington's adopted son. Mary would spend much of her time raising him at Arlington. Between 1832 and 1834, Lee would essentially take charge of the engineers at Fort Monroe from his friend and superior, Captain Talcott, who was frequently absent. Yet his time would be short at Fort Monroe, as in 1834, Lee would be transferred to Washington, D.C., to the War Department. Lee found the office work at the War Department to be monotonous, with the chances of being promoted relatively slim, while the pay was even worse. But he would enjoy the birth of his first daughter, Mary Custis Lee, in 1835. During this time, General Gratio hardly visited the project sites, leaving Lee in charge of overseeing their progress. He was bound by endless red tape and would only be saved from the paperwork when he was dispatched to assist his old friend Captain Tolkos in the Midwest Territories in 1835. In the state of Ohio and the territory of Michigan, fighting broke out over a small section of land known as the Toledo Strip. The Toledo Strip spanned 500 square miles and included the important port of Toledo. This conflict would eventually result in the Toledo War which was little more than a brief skirmish, as the only injury was a Michigan deputy who was stabbed by a boy with a penknife. During the dispute, Captain Tolcott and Lieutenant Lee surveyed the area to better determine the boundaries of Ohio and Michigan, and ultimately, Michigan lost the Toledo Strip to Ohio, but in return, it received the Upper Peninsula, which would be the cause of the rivalry between Ohio and Michigan. Following his surveying of the Ohio and Michigan border, Lee was dispatched in 1837 to St. Louis to solve a major problem. The Mississippi River was cutting a new channel that threatened the port that brought trade to St. Louis, and Lee was the only suitable candidate to tackle the assignment. The port of St. Louis was an important transportation site, as many Americans who traveled west to California and Oregon would meet there, and should Lee fail, westward expansion might come to a complete halt. Lee had two objectives, save the port and waterfront and remove as many trees as possible from a 200-mile stretch of the Mississippi River along the Missouri-Iowa border. The technology of navigational engineering was still in its infancy during Lee's time in St. Louis, and Lee needed to find a way to curb the river's natural will to change direction. The Corps of Engineers had dumped tons of boxed sand around Bloody Island in order to push the current towards St. Louis and away from the new channel. But the boxes were smashed, which only worsened the situation by increasing the bar. After the wooden boxes failed, they tried using teams of oxen to dredge up the sand, yet that attempt too would ultimately fail. The river was not impossible to tame, as Lee had learned many lessons and knew that he must create barriers that were strong enough to channel the current that would also create resistance to destroy the dikes. Lee reflected back to his days at West Point, specifically a French textbook on hydrodynamics, and used that as his inspiration for the project. The original idea was to use the undergrowth to snag debris that floated down the Mississippi River. The Lees had their third child on the 31st of May, 1837. This time, a boy, William Fitzhugh Lee. Despite being overjoyed at the newest addition to the family, the pay Lee was receiving in the army was slowly lessening his ability to take care of his family properly. 
but Lee's work in St. Louis did not go unnoticed, and in July of 1838, he was promoted to the rank of captain. In the summer of 1839, on the 18th of June, the Lees welcomed their fourth child, Anne Carter Lee, to the family. However, his work in St. Louis would be stopped by angry Illinois citizens who opened fire on his workers with cannons, out of fear that the progress Lee was making would cut them out of the increasingly lucrative trading along the Mississippi River. The Illinois citizens had hoped to prevent the growth of St. Louis in order to force trade through their city, and an injunction was issued by the Second Illinois Circuit halting all work on Bloody Island. Lee had worked hard to improve the conditions along the Mississippi, but by the summer of 1840, he returned to St. Louis to finalize the affairs of the army by selling the equipment it had purchased for the work. Lee was then reassigned to New York City to oversee the reconstruction of Forts Hamilton and Lafayette, along with the battery positions on Staten Island. The restoration of these fortifications was vitally important, as the only major threat to American authority was Great Britain, as they were the only nation who had the means to bring the fight to American shores. Yet, before his arrival in New York, the Lees had their fifth child, Eleanor Agnes Lee, on the 27th of February, 1841. His duties in New York were deemed significant enough to encourage his family to move with him, yet Mary and his children would not join him right away. Mary's unwillingness to move to New York at first was criticized by many, as she would have been expected to go wherever Lee went. Yet in her defense, she had five children between 1832 and 1841, and suffered from arthritis and general poor health. Mary would join Lee in New York in the spring of 1843, but would leave shortly after when she found out she was pregnant with their sixth child, Robert E. Lee Jr., on the 27th of October, 1843. But Lee was still in New York, focusing on the forts. Although Lee was a skilled engineer, he had very few other accomplishments which would bring him the attention he deserved. However, he did have one highlight on his resume. Lee was named as a member of the Board of Examiners at West Point in 1844. He would spend two weeks at West Point overseeing and judging the final exams of the cadets, along with Major General Winfield Scott, the commanding officer of the U.S. Army, who formed a positive opinion of Lee during the time they spent together. Scott was a large, towering figure of the day, also a hero from the War of 1812, with the nickname Old Fuss and Feathers. Lee was never the type of person to use flattery to advance himself like many other officers, although this would never have worked on General Winfield Scott as he was known to soak up flattery like a sponge. So Lee used his intelligence instead to impress him. The impression Lee made on General Winfield Scott gave him some advantages, as from 1844 to 1846, he acted as a congressional liaison for the chief of engineering while simultaneously working in New York. He was also appointed to be a member of the Board of Engineers for the Atlantic Coast Defense. And during this time, in early 1846, Mary gave birth to the Lee's final child, Mildred Child, who was affectionately called Millie by Lee. The action which Lee was seeking would eventually happen when events out west began to heat up. Mexico and the United States were trying to establish hegemony over the West, as the territory was increasing in population density. The origin of the disputes go back to 1810, when Moses Austin was granted land in Texas by the Mexican government. 
the Mexican government hoped the American settlers would provide a buffer between the raids of the Comanche tribe and the Mexican citizens. Instead, the Americans overwhelmed the Mexican government, who did not have the administrative or military ability to keep them in line. The ineffectiveness of the Mexican government to corral the American citizens would result in the overthrow of the government by General Antonio López de Santa Ana, who was nicknamed the Napoleon of the West. He would both threaten to take military action on the American settlers and offer to sell them more land. General Santa Ana made good on his threats and attacked the Texan-held mission called the Alamo. From the 23rd of February to the 5th of March in 1836, the 100-men garrison held off the 1,500-strong Mexican army, but the Alamo fell on the 6th of March. The women and children of the mission were allowed to leave, but the men were slaughtered at the site, leading to the famous battle cry, Remember the Alamo! which stirred the American public into a frenzy. Following the massacre at the Alamo, the Texans routed the Mexicans at the Battle of San Jacinto, which forced Mexico to recognize Texan independence. Ten years later, Texas would be annexed by the United States in 1845. Mexico was outraged at the annexation of Texas, while the northern states were irate at the addition of another slave state into the Union. Mexico broke off its diplomatic relations, yet President James Polk wished to maintain diplomatic relations in order to purchase California and New Mexico. Mexico continued to experience political instability as the Mexican presidency changed four times, the Ministry of War six times and the Finance Ministry 16 times. Despite this instability, if there was anything that could unite the Mexican people, it was their hatred for losing Texas to the Americans. The border between the United States and Mexico was disputed as Mexico believed the border was along the Nueces River, while the United States believed the border lay along the Rio Grande. As a result, President Polk sent Brigadier General Zachary Taylor to occupy the land, but they were attacked by a Mexican cavalry unit, killing 16 Americans. The Thornton Affair, as it became known, gave the American government the cause to attack Mexico as Polk argued to Congress that American blood has been shed upon American soil. In response, General Taylor moved swiftly against the Mexican army, defeating them twice at Palo Alto and then at Resaca de la Palma. The Americans outclassed the Mexican army with its advanced weapons, which included the speedily deployed horse artillery and the Colt revolver. The outbreak of the Mexican War gave Lee the opportunity he was looking for to better his rank in the military, and on the 19th of August, 1846, he would be dispatched to San Antonio de Bexar, Texas, to report to Brigadier General John E. Wool. General Wool and Captain Lee were stopped along the Rio Grande when a Mexican officer appeared with a flag of truce, reporting that General Taylor had defeated a Mexican army at the Battle of Monterey. Apparently, General Taylor had accepted an eight-week armistice in return for its surrender. This armistice, as Lee and others speculated, only served as a barrier to allow Santa Ana to recruit and train new soldiers to fight against the Americans. And on the night of the 18th of November, news reached camp that the armistice had been cancelled by President Polk to the relief of Lee and the other soldiers. Lee and the army advanced deep into enemy territory towards Paras to support General Worth in Saltillo and arrived two days before Christmas.
Lee led a scouting mission to determine the position of the Mexican army and was quite determined in his pursuit. His tenacity impressed General Wool, who made Lee his acting inspector general. Lee would learn that being persistent whilst carrying out reconnaissance paid off and also to not take exaggerated reports seriously. General Wool was ordered to join up with General Taylor in Buena Vista to support him against Santa Ana, where Santa Ana was routed by a force of 5,000 Americans against his 14,000 Mexican force. Lee left to join General Scott on the 17th of January, 1847, and upon his arrival was accepted into Scott's general staff and inner circle. Lee was quartered on the flagship USS Massachusetts, sharing his room with former West Point classmate Joseph E. Johnston. In total, 12,000 men would be under General Scott's command for the invasion of Veracruz. On the 19th of February, 1848, the fleet sailed to the Lobos Islands to rendezvous with the rest of their forces, but were delayed due to smallpox outbreaks and a vicious storm. The fleet left on the 3rd of March and arrived in Veracruz on the 5th of March, where Lee first saw the imposing island fortress of San Juan de Ulua, which guarded the city. Lee boarded the Petrita along with General Scott to survey the beaches, but the ship strayed too close to the fort, leading to an opening salvo from the fortress. This was the first time in Lee's 22-year-long military career that he had been under fire. On the 9th of March, 2,595 soldiers went ashore with no resistance from the Mexican army, and during the night of the 22nd of March, the American mortars opened fire. By the 27th of March, Veracruz had fallen to the Americans. Lee's first taste of battle would leave him disheartened, as he would write to Mary that it was awful. My heart bled for the inhabitants. The soldiers I did not care so much for, but it was terrible to think of the women and children. Lee never had a love for glory for his own sake, and his first battle left him melancholy. General Scott then looked to Mexico City, which was 280 miles away, but his supply lines would be stretched thin. The United States Army had no intelligence concerning where Santa Ana's army was located, let alone their size. Santa Ana had returned to Mexico City following his defeat at Buena Vista and raised a new force of 12,000. General Scott left Veracruz with 6,000 troops and found Santa Ana at Cerro Gordo, where he held an imposing defensive position. Following a reconnaissance mission, Lee informed General Scott there was a potential pathway they could cut to the extreme left flank of Santa Ana's line without them knowing. Scott agreed and gave Lee the opportunity to guide a division to the Mexican army and commence the battle on the 18th of April. In preparation for the assault, the soldiers started scaling the hill on the 17th of April, but they made too much noise and alerted the Mexican army, who started advancing down the hill. They countercharged up the hill, pushing the Mexican army back before finally establishing a hold on the summit of La Atalaya. Ultimately, the Mexicans were defeated at the Battle of Cerro Gordo, and the Americans only suffered minor casualties in comparison to the Mexican army. Lee's actions at the Battle of Cerro Gordo earned him a promotion to Brevet Major and praise from all of his superiors. Lee would leave with Scott, along with Lieutenants PGT Beauregard and George B. McClellan, towards Mexico City. Following a small engagement at Molina del Rey, the army was now in position to assault Chapultepec, an important fortress. As it overlooked Mexico City, 
which would allow for continuous assaults. As a senior engineer, Lee argued against a direct assault on the fortress, but Lee was overruled and led Pillow's division to the west flank of Chapultepec. The first assault was pushed back, but the second assault was successful, with Lee climbing the slope accompanied by Lieutenants James Longstreet and George Pickett. Lee was injured during the assault, but was able to help General Pillow away from the battle. Following the fall of Chapultepec, nearly all Mexican resistance collapsed. But Mexico City wouldn't be fully pacified until two days later due to Santa Ana releasing armed criminals from the local prison. It was a solemn peace, as many Americans believed they had bullied Mexico throughout the war. Lee would be promoted to brevet colonel for his actions at Chapultepec and eventually returned home on the 29th of June, 1848. It took roughly 32 years from the time he started as a cadet at West Point for Lee to rise to brevet colonel, and in comparison to other officers of the time, he advanced only slightly faster than the average officer. While Lee would not receive a proper promotion, he was elevated to serve as the superintendent of West Point in 1852, a major accomplishment and a compliment to his teaching abilities. Although Lee was not thrilled at the prospect, as he unusually complained to his friend PGT Beauregard that it was an impossibility of either giving or receiving satisfaction from overseeing West Point. Nonetheless, he worked hard bettering the cavalry school by lobbying for new stables and a practice ring. It is also possible that Lee designed the new facilities himself, as they were very similar to the stables at Lee's home in Arlington. Under Lee's guidance, West Point produced the finest cavalry officers of the era. He cared about the well-being of the cadets, but he could not coddle them or else they would prove to be poor officers. West Point cadets were notorious for their high jinks along with their rowdiness and undisciplined behavior. As a result, Lee would turn towards corporal punishment. All right, everybody, Joseph Gibson Podcasting. Understand the time we live today. Time for me, of course, I want to play this one here real quick. At common law, there were two separate court systems and with two different types. Um, very important because the, the uh, assemblies are, throughout the country today, uh, growing. And I've been covering that here lately. So uh, the common law grand jury can help. So you need to check that out. Go to the common law grand jury and sign up. Go to the nationallibertyalliance.org. Let me play this one for you here. They'll introduce the NLA and discuss some concepts of what the NLA is all about. So I'd like to welcome Lauren to the NLA News Channel. Give us a brief introduction and take it away, Lauren. Well, thank you. Um, Yeah, I uh, appreciate the opportunity to uh, be on your program. I am fairly new to this in the sense that I haven't been associated with Readout News that long. How this all got started for me, just to give some more background by way of introduction, is uh, I uh, was living in Cedar City, Utah back in 2014, and it came to my attention as well as many other people in Utah, especially in southern Utah, about what was happening in Bunkerville, Nevada. So several of us just spontaneously, without any pre-planning, we jumped in our vehicles to go down there and see what was going on. Some of us got there, you know, earlier, others got there later. But it was right, I personally got there after the actual event that happened, um, you know, in the wash, as they call it, the wash uh, underneath the 
overpass. Um, but uh, I was there to observe and to see firsthand what was going on, and I was able to see firsthand the uh, the abuses that were happening from the BLM. I had a chance to briefly talk with uh, Ammon Bundy and got this side of the story. And from there, things just kind of grew as I became more and more familiar with uh, all of the circumstances surrounding that. And uh, then, you know, the, the whole thing with the Malheur Wildlife Refuge happened, and we arrested them following that, and uh, the murder of LaVoy Finnecum, <clears throat> which led me to create a Facebook page called uh, Court Watchers for Constitutional Originalists. At the time, I was thinking, you know, the definition of an originalist is somebody like Scalia, I mean, Supreme Court Justice Scalia. But it's really anybody who, who's read the Federalist Papers and has gone back and really tried to to dig out what the original intent of the founders were, the framers, um, when they put together the, the Constitution. It took a long time uh, before they finally could agree on something that it ratified. But that's what I was going after, and I, and I really wanted to uh, kind of focus on what was happening with the Bundys and their uh, supporters and defendants. The police. They protect us, they serve us, and they provide us with an endless source of TV show one-liners. Rock, paper, scissors, gun. Well, I know Serena Williams, but I know one thing. It's all in the wrist. Who'd want to cut your penis off? Take a number. Okay. Now, you laugh, but admit it, you want to watch the rest of that episode right now. Trust in the police is one of the most vital elements in a civilized society. But for many Americans, that trust has been undermined by a procedure called civil forfeiture. Now, I know it sounds like a Gwyneth Paltrow euphemism for divorce, but, but incredibly, it's actually even worse than that. Civil asset forfeiture is really a mechanism by which the uh, state and federal government can seize people's property without having to convict them of a crime. Most people can't afford to hire a lawyer to challenge it. It's really legalized robbery by law enforcement. And think about it, that is a tough crime to report to the police. Uh, give me a description of what the guy looked like. Well, to be honest, he looked a lot like the guy currently asking me what the guy looked like. And if you think this sounds bad, just wait until you see how it looks. Because the Washington Post recently published a major investigation featuring stories like that of this man, who was driving from Michigan to San Francisco with $2,400 in cash that his dad had lent him to start a new job when he was pulled over in Nevada. I gave him my license and registration, and then as he was looking at that information, he asked me how much money I was traveling with. Well, he told him about the money his dad gave him, which he kept in the trunk. He, he told me to turn on my air vents on high and roll up my windows and get out of the car because he was going to run a canine around it. Dove didn't find drugs, but he did find the $2,400. He said, no, I'm going to keep the money because I've concluded through my investigation here that you are traveling from Michigan to California to purchase drugs. Wow. And there is so much wrong there, including the fact that any policeman who genuinely believes you need to travel from Michigan to California to purchase drugs needs to be introduced to the concept of the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Okay? It's right there. And, and the problem is, 
like that are, are surprisingly common. In fact, since 9-11, under just one program, police have taken $2.5 billion in the course of over 61,000 seizures of cash alone from people who, and this is the mind-blowing part, were not charged with a crime. That is the sort of police behaviour that we laugh at other countries for, along with their accents and silly hats. <laughs> the way civil forfeiture generally works is that if the police believe they have a preponderance of the evidence that suggests your property was or could be used in a crime, they may confiscate it. And it gets even weirder. Many folks are unfamiliar with the idea of civil forfeiture, which is actually um, a, a case brought against, directly against a piece of property where you don't need to be proven guilty of a crime for your goods to be taken away. Exactly. You don't need to be charged with a crime because it's not you that's on trial, it's your stuff. That's why these cases have historically had eye-catching names, such as, and all of these are real, United States versus $8,850 in U.S. currency. All right, everybody, Joseph Gibson uh, podcasting here. And that's true. Uh, I know that comedy is one way to uh, get people's attention, but uh, one way, you know, look, these people, look, U.S. Code 18, uh, 1341, frauds and swindles. Okay, whoever having devised or attending to devise or scheme or artifice or defraud for obtaining money or property by means of false fraudulent or pretense, representations or promise or to sell, depose of loan exchange, alter, give away, distribute, supply or furnish or procure for unlawful or any counterfeit or superior coin, obligation, security or the article or anything represented to be or uh, intimidated or held out to be such counterfeit or spontaneous article of the purpose of executing such scheme or artifice or attempting so to do to do places any post office or authorized depository for the mail matter and matter or thing whatever to be sent or delivered by the post office deposits or causes to be deposited any matter or thing whatever to be sent or delivered by any private or commercial interstate carrier or takes or receives <laughs> shall I go on let's just talk about the shall be fined under this title or imprisoned not more than 20 years or both if the violation occurs in relation to or involving any benefit authorized transport or transmitted, transferred, dispersed, or paid in connection with presidentially declared major disaster or emergency funds, <laughs> those terms, USC 5122. We're not even going to go to that one. Now, the average person out there, I think, or the founding fathers, if they read something like that, would be just uh, beside themselves. This is the, what what people in a suit and tie and what ignorance gets you and what these universities breed is this type of crap right here. Nobody can understand that crap. Who can understand what I just read right there? I, I understand it, but I'm just saying if the, if the regular person out there, if you know, how do you apply it? Well, they can apply that to confiscating your money, too. You know, so, uh, you know, um, many different – and through the Patriot Act, too. So, man messed up world. It's a messed up country, man. Stuff that we cover here tonight. It's crazy. Uh six five seven three eight three zero six one six. If anybody wants to talk here, um, by all means, you're welcome to because we're going to be going uh, about eleven. We have about eleven minutes left to the show. Um, so uh, let's see here. It's Monday night. So you got Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night. All right. So uh, yeah, I won't be on this Friday, most likely, but uh, probably do a show tomorrow. I don't know. I'll probably do one over here. Um, yeah. I mean, come on, people. Uh, 
Oh, I'm going to be on a, uh, another podcast show, actually, another podcast show, not the NSM. Um, let me get to that one right now. Let me advertise that for people out there in the archive that listen. So you can check it out. Um, this is a Wednesday night gig here. This is uh, actually a different type of podcast. I don't know how you – I don't think it's blog talk radio, actually, either. Um, it's called savingfatherhood.org. Savingfatherhood.org, I think. Uh, I think that's the one where he's going to be broadcasting from. I'm pretty, I'm not 100% sure, but I will give you the uh, details in the uh, future here. I'm trying to find them here, but I can't find them where I can get the uh, link or whatever. But it's not it's not blog talk. So it's a different type of podcast. It's actually going to be video. So people get to see me on video, too. So, uh, yeah, TV, man. So uh, me, uh, I did a radio show with this guy, actually, about a year and a half ago. So, uh, yeah, I'm pretty popular out there. So, uh, uh, But anyway, uh, anybody who wants to say something now, you need to hold your peace until the next show, I guess. Uh, I'll try to do an earlier show so it's not so late. Um, scaling back on the work this week, I'm sure you all know why. Um, so I'm doing some late-night stuff. But, uh, oh, trust me, I can go four, uh, three, four days. You know, I can go an hour of sleep. Sleep deprivation, not a problem. Not a problem. I can, I can, I can go two days easy. Third day, I start getting feeling it. You know, third day, I start feeling it. So, uh, but I don't do that. I'm just saying. I usually, if I have to, like tonight, I'll go to sleep maybe, you know, two or three hours. You know, but there's a time when I crash and man, I'll sleep like 14, 15 hours straight, and that's like once a month I'll do that. So, but uh, yeah, man. So if you missed this show, go back and listen to it. I cover some uh, stuff, you know, and uh, about things that are happening, and uh, it all coincides with what I've been talking about here tonight. So uh, go back and listen and uh, check it out. Let me check the phone boards here. Anybody want to talk? You can press one now. If not, we're going to uh, go ahead and uh, get ready to wrap up the show here. Um, let's see. Let me check out the chat room here. Gavin Moorhead was in there. I don't know where the hell he went. Oh, Sarge was in there. Oh, Sarge joined you. Oh, where the heck are you, Sarge? Huh. Yes, he must be listening to something else. He must be uh, not wanting to call in tonight. So I got a couple callers on the board. It's late, so, you know, I understand. I'm not going to get the bombardment that I usually get. But, uh, man, but this show does go in the archive, and a lot of people do listen to it in the archive. So without, if anybody, nobody has nothing else to say, I mean, uh, what I can do is, uh, let me see here. I could play you something here at the end here for, uh, you know, uh, to wrap this up. I mean, you know, nobody has, has nothing to say. That's fine. Um, you know, I, I understand that uh, it's late. You know, probably, probably people got family sleeping. I can't get on here and start yelling. <laughs> hey, whatever. Remember that guy that was uh, from the Atlanta City uh, Olympic bombing? Remember that? Remember that? I was watching a documentary about him or a movie. You know, uh, what was his name, man? I forgot his name even. I think he was a little slow, that guy. But they blamed him for bombing the guy, the retarded kid or whatever, the fat kid, right? And then, then they come, they cleared him. But the FBI swore it was him until finally the guy at the end confessed in like 2004, I think, or something. Uh, it was like a long time later he confessed. That guy actually died. Uh, I forgot his name, man. That guy in the Atlantic City bomber, you know, bombing. Remember they bombed the Olympics there? It was 1996, man. Damn, man. God, time flies. I asked the guy today I was working with. I said, uh... Uh, you know, he, you know, I forgot. I was having a conversation when I said, "Well, what's the end here? What's the what's the result here? What are we fighting for?" I forgot. He made a comment to me, and I was like, "Yeah," <laughs> or something. I made some kind of comment. I'm like, what are we fighting for here? What's the end result? 
I mean, what's the goal here? What, what, what is my goal? What are the goals? <laughs> what is your goal? What are the goals to achieve? Just live, I guess, survive? You know? I mean, what, don't we have goals? I don't know. I'm trying to find this, this, uh, this, uh, you know, like, you guys will like this one. I think it's pretty good. Um, if I can find it. I don't know if I can find it or not. But, I don't think that's it. Oh, I think it's what if. That's it. That's the one. What if. Yeah. If I can find it, it's got to be here someplace. It's way down here. But just be patient. You guys will like it. Trust me. Um, I think I played it on the NSM one, so maybe not. Maybe you guys already heard it. But uh, understanding the times in which we live today, that's the name of the podcast show. So um, we covered a lot of good stuff here tonight. And uh, go back and listen to the archive shows. They're pretty good. Oh, there it is. What if? All right, we'll play this one. All right. Three, it's three minutes long. Go ahead and listen to it because we got about three minutes. Left. I'll check the phone boards one real quick in case any of you guys pressed one. No? Okay, you know you did. All right, then. Well, we're just going to go ahead and get ready to wrap it up, then it's late. I got some stuff I could do here on the side and uh, take care of stuff here. So uh, let's play this one here. Obviously, no, not a commercial. Not a commercial. We go. We're not going to play that one. All right. That's what, you know, I can't stand this big tech crap. I have a few questions for my colleagues. What if our foreign policy of the past century is deeply flawed and has not served our national security interests? What if we wake up one day and realize that the terrorist threat is a predictable consequence of our meddling in the affairs of others and has nothing to do with us being free and prosperous? What if it's propping up repressive regimes in the Middle East endangers both the United States and Israel? What if occupying countries like Iraq and Afghanistan and bombing Pakistan is directly related to the hatred directed toward us? What if someday it dawns on us that losing over 5,000 American military personnel in the Middle East since 9-11 is not a fair trade-off for the loss of nearly 3,000 American citizens, no matter how many Iraqi, Pakistani, and Afghan people are killed or displaced? What if we finally decide that torture, even if called enhanced interrogation technique, is self-destructive and produces no useful information, and that contracting it out to a third-world nation is just as evil? What if it is finally realized that war and military spending is always destructive to the economy? What if all of your time spending is paid for through the deceitful and evil process of inflating and borrowing? What if we finally see that wartime conditions always undermine personal liberty? What if conservatives who preach small government wake up and realize that our interventionist foreign policy provides the greatest incentive to expand the government? What if conservatives understood once again that their only logical position is to reject military intervention in managing an empire throughout the world? What if the American people woke up and understood that the official reasons for going to war are almost always based on lies and promoted by war propaganda in order to serve special interests? What if we as a nation came to realize that the quest for empire eventually destroys all great nations? What if Obama has no intention of leaving Iraq? What if a military draft is being planned for for the war that will spread if our foreign policy is not changed? What if the American people learn the truth 
of Scotland, starving and outnumbered, charged the fields of Bannockburn. They fought like warrior poets. They fought like Scotsmen and won their freedom. <laughs> 